Hey there, this is Liz Lash, and you're listening to Entering the Bar, a podcast on life and the law. Us lawyers may have passed the bar, but at the end of the day, we often find ourselves entering the bar, not only to relax, but to fetch about clients, cases, and the like. What's it like to live life as a lawyer? That's what we're here to talk about. And since we're lawyers, here's your first disclaimer. We're not here to give you legal advice. Welcome to the first episode of Entering the Bar. In this episode, I interview Benjamin Wright. Ben, welcome to the show. Thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure to be invited. It's a pleasure to have you on. So today we're going to talk about your expertise in the cybersecurity community and how you got there and your unique position in this community and the, the take you have on practicing law. Ben, I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today. All right. The centerpiece of all of my professional work these days is my teaching as an instructor at an organization named the SANS Institute. And the SANS Institute is a very technically oriented training organization that uh, trains uh, uh, primarily information security and forensics professionals on dealing with security and investigations. And as a lawyer, I am honored and humbled to be invited into this community and I teach a five-day class called the Law of Data Security and Investigations. The work in this class comes about as a result of me spending some 30 years in technology law. And across those 30 years, I've written books and worked for a wide variety of clients but uh, about 15 years ago, I came across the SANS Institute, and they invited me to start teaching about the legal aspects of information security. Once I got into that role, I learned that people who do information security work very commonly are also engaged in investigations, whether it be a forensic investigation or it be incident response or it's e-discovery, as we lawyers often uh, call it with respect to lawsuits. And so we at the SANS Institute evolved that course so that it's not just about information security today. It's about the law of information security but it's also about the law of cyber investigations. And that's really a topic for today, isn't it? It, it, it is. And the, the two concepts of security and investigations go hand in hand with one another. And so I, um, I have a very diverse group of people who come take this class, people from all over the world, and they teach me things, and I learn a lot. And I'm so uh, blessed, I guess is the best way to say it, that I get to participate in this community, and there aren't very many other lawyers who get as involved as I do at the Sands Institute. So I, I, I'm, I, I, I get to see issues. I get to see techniques. I get to see attitudes. I get to see trends 
uh, that a lot of other lawyers just wouldn't see uh, in in their normal practice or, or work where they might work at a single enterprise or at a single em- employer. Uh, so- and that's a really interesting position, right? In fact, you know, we met at the SANS conference, I think, two weeks ago, right? And you're the only lawyer teaching a course that's full of cybersecurity professionals, all totally technical, right? Well, they're not all totally technical. That's, so good. that's a good point. That's a good point. Some, <laughs> I, I, we, I, get, I get a percentage of lawyers, usually less than 10% wow. are lawyers. And, and then I get a few other people of different descriptions who are not necessarily technical. But most of the people who take my class have a technical background, and they uh, they tend to be people who are a little uh, more advanced in their uh, careers. They're, they tend not to be mm. just kids right out of college who you know, have an engineering degree or a right. computer science degree. They're people who have uh, some responsibility within their organizations. And as they rise in responsibility, they realize they need to see the larger picture related to management of liability and policies and uh, compliance types of issues. And that's interesting that you were able to take your understanding of, of this area and marry it with the law to make it clear for them. You're really in a unique position there, I think. I have to and have had to adjust a lot to be able to deliver valuable education in mm-hmm. this kind of a community. I, I can't just walk in there mm-hmm. and give what we lawyers would consider to be a traditional continuing legal education type of experience. Interesting. Uh, most of them aren't lawyers, and they don't think like lawyers, and they don't even – many of them, as they come into the room, they they think they know what the law is. A lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people who are – you know, have experience in their careers, they think they know what the law is, and I – often turn them around and make yeah. them think different, differently and that's uh, and make them look at at legal concerns from a, a new and fresh perspective mm-hmm. similarly for the lawyers who come in uh, they know law mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily know this field of law that's and they true. don't necessarily know an awful lot about computer forensics or incident response that's or true. cybersecurity and uh, the lawyers can change as well, that they end up seeing things from, mm-hmm. a, from a quite different uh, perspective. Uh, and, and so uh, I, as I walk into the room every mm-hmm. time, I uh, am also prepared to change the way I think. And I, I try to avoid being doctrinaire about anything because this field is so challenging and surprising that I need to be very alert to the possibility that there are things happening that I don't understand or things will will happen or cases will come mm-hmm. down that I didn't anticipate right. or that students just know something or have experiences or wisdom that I don't have and therefore I change or try to change. Yeah, and I think you know change is an important part of having your own law practice, right, is the the ability to evolve quickly, and especially in this field, 
where, mm-hmm. you know, something new is happening every day. I mean, I know in the class I took a couple weeks ago, which was just an introduction to cybersecurity because I, you know, I'm really at, uh, I have very little technical knowledge. You know, I had the professor, you know, talking about certain techniques and, you know, how to detect, you know, certain cyber attacks. And then, you know, I was working with a TA and, you know, he would say to me, well, that's actually already outdated. You know, that's, that can be detected. And so that, that was a very interesting, that was eye opening to me, even that, you know, you have all these experts and it's changing so fast that even the experts, you know, uh, uh, have to keep up with new developments in the field. And so my question to you is on, you talked a little bit about techniques you have to use to teach people in this community, you know, about the law and kind of open their eyes. And what sort of things do you do to help them? Or what what do you draw upon in your experience um, to help them kind of, you know, approach things from a different perspective? The SANS Institute has certain conventions. And I learned a long time ago, I've got to fit within the conventions. And that means we start at nine o'clock in the morning. We take breaks at certain specific times <laughs> and we and we end more or less at five o'clock and we don't go too past too far past five o'clock. Right. And students, students turn off at five o'clock. Mm-hmm. But that's a long day, nine to five with some breaks. Yeah. And and we go five days straight. And so it's different from teaching a college class, for example, where you teach for an hour and a half right. uh, twice a week, and then the students stand up and they leave and they go do other things. It's mm-hmm. just, you know, it's, it's very compact. And, and therefore, I've learned that in order to uh, deliver a, a memorable, useful, valuable experience, mm-hmm. I've got to consider my SANS course as a form of entertainment. Mm. If, it, if it doesn't have an entertainment component, people fall asleep, they walk, <laughs> out, they walk out the door talking on their phone, Ooh. they're just not listening, yeah. uh, they don't come back, they leave at break, they don't come back, and, 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 and whatever. It's just, it's just not a useful experience. And yeah. there, therefore, I I work very hard at uh, uh, trying to deliver concepts mm-hmm. uh, that are memorable, that are timeless, and that keep the students engaged in this entire time. And, and th- thus, I've got a whole bunch of gimmicks, and I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I try to be theatrical. And one of the things I've, I've learned is that uh, I have a certain kind of personality hmm. that doesn't fit what a lot of people think of as a conventional lawyer's personality. And I don't know. I've never been much in the courtroom, so I don't know what I would do in the courtroom. But the kinds <laughs> of, of uh, techniques that I use to speak in front of stands are not the kinds of things that typically a lawyer would use in a courtroom or in front of a panel of, of judges. And so, Really? I'll do all kinds of funny things. Uh, for example, I, I, to illustrate a, a, a point, yeah. I'll, I'll uh, uh, demonstrate the NBA flops. The NBA flop is when these National Basketball <laughs> Association players are out there competitively playing a tough game, and one guy gets tapped a little bit, and he flails out onto the floor, and then he stands up, and he says, hey, ref, did you see that guy? He fouled me. And 
And so I do that uh, right there in class. I just flail out onto the floor. <laughs> and, and, and for a lot of students, they're surprised because they think lawyers don't do this. No. Lawyers are supposed, supposed to be act. dignified. What's this guy doing on the floor? <laughs> He's falling on the floor. But my, what I'm trying to demonstrate, and hopefully in a memorable way, is that a lawsuit can be a very competitive experience where something happens and your adversary may try to make the judge think that whatever happened was really, really bad. When in fact, maybe it wasn't all that bad. Right. And right. now, of course, in the courtroom, the way all this works out can be in a much more calm and, and less theatrical way. But the outcome is very similar. Of, of information comes out, it can be very technical information, technical information about email records and backup tapes and Absolutely. all this and, and whatever. Uh, and 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 so, if you actually watch this unfold in front of the uh, a judge, it's all very calm information, and it's mm-hmm. and it's all delivered in in, in a, a very uh, uh, sort of scholarly, academic sounding way to the right. average public. But in fact, what's going on is one guy is going, "Your Honor, this guy did something really horrible, and uh, he destroyed backup tapes, <laughs> or or he fa- he lied about uh, the configuration of his email system, or something like that." <laughs> well, what I'm trying to demonstrate through this. Uh, NBA flop is that for a judge listening to this kind of stuff, it's all very technical. The judge has a very hard time really understanding what's going on and what's a big deal and what's not a big deal. Absolutely. And just like a referee at the NBA can have a hard time knowing, was he fouled or was he not fouled? Is this mm. guy making this thing up? Is he exaggerating how he was fouled or did he really get hit hard and therefore do I need to call it a foul? Well, okay, so there's a reason why NBA players will be theatrical sometimes and and kind of over-exaggerate how bad the other guy was. Well, the same kinds of things happen in the in the courtroom, uh, uh, even though it's all in hushed language and so on. In any event, so I'll, I'll use these kinds of techniques, and I've, essentially I've gotten positive feedback on that type of thing. It keeps students awake. They, yeah. they are so surprised. They go, well, I, you know, I, I thought I was going to be <laughs> Try and now this guy—he's running all over the room and he's throwing things and he's and, and, and he's he's gesticulating and he's he's writing things up on the board and then he's flailing on the floor and <laughs> and, and and then you know I'll I'll. I'll come to a point where I, I fall down on my hands and knees and put my hands up together and say, you know, uh, in a demonstrative way, you know, I'm asking for the judge who's going to review my policy five years from now. I'm asking that judge, please have mercy on me. Okay, <laughs> okay but I, I, I'm demonstrating all of that to yeah. just explain why I might write in a policy some language that attempts to – reduce the expectations of a judge who might read this policy five years from now. But, but okay. Oh, that's but I, brilliant. <laughs> so, well, it's, it, so it, it, it's something that has sort of become natural. It comes naturally from what my personality is. And, okay, well, the, all that personality didn't necessarily work for me. That style of personality didn't necessarily come out or work for me a long, long, long time ago when I was working for a big law firm. But in the Sands world, yeah, it, it works. 
Uh, it's 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 accepted, and the the students like it. And so students will say things like, "I can't believe you kept me awake all this afternoon." You know, <laughs> God, you know, I, you know, I, I I just you know I just stop I, I I couldn't stop paying attention. Okay, wow. Then I can't you know I had them engaged, and and so we had a good day. That that's a big compliment. And you know what? Let let's talk about that more for a second about you know what I guess that sounds like that informed your decision to go from a law firm to opening up your own firm, right? Because that's what, that's what essentially happened. You went to law school and you went to, I don't know whether it was a big firm or small firm or medium firm. And then you sort of went, yeah, this is not for me. You know, do you want to talk about that for a second? Yes. Uh, Although it was a very long time ago. Uh, So uh, I did work for Thompson and Knight, which is a large Dallas law firm in the 1980s. And I, even in law school, was thinking about how can I do something different in my Mm. career, something that will evolve and grow as the years go by. And I was inspired while I was at the law firm to be thinking hard about what today we call electronic commerce. And that means doing business through electronic communications. And even at that time, when I uh, was starting to think about it, the big form of electronic communication was the fax machine. Oh, my and, goodness. <laughs> yeah, so we're talking ancient, ancient history. And uh, just there, there, there came a point where it made sense in my life where my wife and I were married. She had a job. We paid off the student loans. We had a little bit of savings. We didn't have any children. And I had the freedom in my life to pursue something just really different. Therefore, I I struck out in 1988 wow. with only the most vague idea of what I would find as a, a, a way to earn a living, given that I had a, a law degree. And uh, ultimately, with quite a bit of effort, I found electronic commerce. And I found it at a time when no one is even using the word electronic, the uh, term electronic commerce. And and so in the the 1990s, I wrote books and had clients and and did a lot of public speaking on electronic commerce. And uh, and, and then that evolved uh, in the 2000s into more uh, information security and, and forensics type work. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I remember, I think my first job in college was working for a PR firm and we specialized in e-commerce. It was like B2B. Everything was B2B back then. Um, and yeah, I mean, I sort of, you know, vaguely remember, you know, and this is, I wish I could track it down, but I remember having, it was a tiny little book and it was about all the inventions you'd see in, you know, 2010 or something like that. And okay. It, you know, talked about LCD technology and robots that could vacuum the house and uh-huh. mini computers. And it's so it's funny. I mean, you really had a vision back then. Obviously, you know, maybe with along with a few other people. How did you How did you come up with the idea to go to kind of write about electronic commerce? I credit my brother, who uh, is a computer engineer and was a computer nerd dating back before 
anybody even knew what a, very many people even knew what a computer was. He, when he was a kid, he would play around with electronics and work with electronics. And and so he told me back in the 1980s that. If I didn't learn about computers, learn how to use them, I would become a dinosaur. So I took what he said very, very seriously. And uh, my wife and I made a huge investment in 1987. We purchased a computer for $3,500. Wow. It's a large amount of money. And uh, the the thing that really excited me about the thing was that it had a little modem on it. So my brother taught me how to uh, attach the computer to the telephone line, and I could dial out, and I could chat with uh, people. And uh, as a business lawyer, at that time, I was working at the law firm, and I was doing business law and transactions. And as a business lawyer, I sat there, and I looked at that, and I said – you could form contracts this way. You could do contracts. And there was already a little bit of that type of thing happening on Wall Street. And I uh, uh, had this vision that all kinds of business would be transacted by way of computers talking to one another, and we would stop using Federal Express and the Postal Service to send paper contracts back and forth and, <laughs> and the, 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 all the kinds of stuff that we did in the 70s and, and the 80s. And, and thus, my real challenge as I left the law firm in 1988 was to go find where this type of thing was actually happening to the extent that I could earn some money doing something. And, and uh, right. with quite a bit of effort, I started finding examples of um, people and organizations that were uh, doing forms of electronic commerce, uh, and I, I started writing books and got some reputation and attracted some clients, and that got got me going. That's really fascinating. Um, so, how did you? It sounds like at a certain point you took that knowledge and you pivoted into a. Uh, somewhat different area, right? You went from electronic commerce, and then you said, eh, I've had enough of that. I'm going into more information security and forensics and investigation. Yeah. So what made you decide to do that? I was forced to reinvent myself around the year 2001. So uh, there was, there was Y2K. a... Y2K. <laughs> well, it wasn't Y2K. Oh, oh, uh, this, but what had happened is that there was a big uh, run-up of uh, technology companies. It was called the dot-com boom in the late 1990s. And then there was the dot-com bust yes. around the year 2000. And then September 11 happened. And those things combined literally brought my business to a halt. There was nothing going on. All my clients were gone. Oh Nobody wanted to, to spend any money on electronic commerce anymore. What a and I, I was sitting there. Now I had children. And, oh. and, uh, you know, so I had a more urgent need to earn a living. And it took some time and effort. I did a lot of poking around and thinking. A good deal of the work that I'd done in writing legal books in the 90s evaluated security and evaluated electronic evidence. How do you prove something? Uh, for example, it was an important topic I'd done a lot of work on, and, and uh, at least from a kind of a, a scholarly uh, perspective. Mm -hmm. Still an important and, topic. <laughs> and and, and uh, 
I sensed coming out of September 11 that organizations would pay for security. They wouldn't pay for electronic commerce law anymore. And electronic commerce law, they'd sort of learned it and figured it out, and some laws had been passed, and answers had come about. And so uh, I, I thought, i got to get into security. I, in any event, I, uh. Uh, I, I got a brochure in the mail in 2002 from the SANS Institute, and, and SANS was much smaller at that time. But they, they had a number of courses, and the brochure said, if you've got an idea for a class, send an email to the president of the SANS Institute. So I sent him an email, and within an hour, he and I were on the phone. Wow. And was really <laughs> intrigued that I had as much background as I did, that I had as much material from the books that I'd written, and that I'd had quite a bit of uh, experience uh, 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 teaching professionals right. and giving public uh, presentations. So that began a, uh, a beautiful relationship. And uh, so from that, then that, that course started as a one day course and we evolved it and expanded it. And, and we've changed it a lot as the years have gone by. But today, the, almost everything I do relates back to the SANS Institute. I do a number of things for SANS. I do some things that are in addition to just teaching classes. But then most of my client work comes because uh, someone saw me at SANS or they read something about me at SANS and they they, uh, contacted me. Ah, that was very smart. So little did you know (laughs) what it would grow into, right? That's amazing that you took that risk and you worked on it. You took your, your background and you really made it into something, creating this really unique position. I think that's really fascinating. Um, it's, it's scary. And scary. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait. It's, it's scary uh, because, uh, you know, since 1988, I've just not had uh, an employer behind me. Wow. And I got to reinvent myself every day. And even though the Sands Institute today provides me quite a bit of work, um, I have no idea if they're going to invite me back t- tomorrow. I mean, if my evaluations uh, in class go down, then uh, they'll they'll uh, schedule me for fewer classes, fewer students will come take the class, and, and, and then I got to go find something else to do. Wow. I really admire that. And I think we talked a couple of days ago and I said, you know, I kind of understand where you're coming from. You know, my father's had his own business for, I think, 30 years. And every couple of years, you know, he'll say, oh, business is going down. I don't know what to do about this. And then all of a sudden he'll hit on some other idea um, and end up specializing in a different area. And I think it's amazing to have you know, that kind of business. And it shows, you know, you're really inventive and creative about this. And I think that's something that's very important, even as lawyers, you know, to to be constantly, you know, reinventing ourselves and to be sort of innovative in how we look at issues. And I think that your career definitely shows that you have been. I think that's really amazing. And the same thing can happen to lawyers in big law firms, because uh, you can you can be a partner in a big law firm, but if you're not attracting clients and, and you're not um, uh, being able to satisfy the latest needs of clients, then you can 
uh, be shunted off to the side and be asked to leave and and and, and so on. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 just part of uh, being a a professional in the modern age. That's true. Uh, but That's I, a good point. I try to, I try to be. Uh, really open to the unexpected. I, I every day I, I try to say I don't know. You know, as I wake up in the morning, I try to say I don't know what's going to happen today. You know, okay, <laughs> I, I, I got some, I got some things on my agenda, uh, but I still don't know what's going to happen. And I I try to be very very open to uh, new opportunities or new ways to look at things or. Um, being able to to recognize when it's time to change into into whatever is is different and i think that's that's the best attitude you can have no matter what what career you have or what role you have as a lawyer and i think that's something valuable for um you know for everyone a really valuable lesson to have that kind of attitude and that philosophy and i really i really admire that um, so, Ben, in keeping with the name of uh, the podcast, mm-hmm. um, Entering the Bar, which is my favorite little joke, I think I, I uh-huh. told you, because um, I always kidded that it should be called um, Entering the Bar, not Passing the Bar, because we spend so much uh-huh. time drinking at social functions, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, right. Do you have any, um, any, any, uh, anything that ever drove you to drink or any funny stories, you know, having to do with the bar, favorite bar, um, you know, in keeping with the theme? <laughs> I, I hope nothing has driven me to uh, drink. Uh, I hope so, too. Maybe the first thing that comes to mind related to that is I do think that a glass of wine in the evening is very lubricating for my mind. I've noted <laughs> – it be in a, in a, it actually in a use in, in a a productive way. Huh? I've I've noted uh, just how I'll um, I'll just be quiet and have a glass of wine and whatever has happened that day has mm-hmm. happened. Whatever all that stuff is, whatever all my problems are, but from a business uh, perspective, I don't even have to be thinking about it. But then I can just you know a glass of wine. Uh, it can, it just kind of loosens me up and I go, oh, that's what I should say to this party on the other side, or that's what I should say ah. in this letter, or that's how I should rewrite this contract. Or <laughs> it, I, I've actually, it's, I've, it's quite, you know, it's, it's happened in my, in my uh, life where I, I realized, gosh, you know, I just needed to get away mm-hmm. from that problem. Yeah. And stop thinking about it, but it's still there in the back of my mind. And so, yes, I do like a glass of wine uh, in the evenings, and that's so. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not much, I guess I'm, uh, sounds like a very healthy way to drink. <laughs> yeah, my personality and my, and my wife's personality is not to be hanging out in bars. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think that, you know, it sounds like that's kind of your meditation on the day. And I think that's a that's a very healthy thing. And that's that's um, whether you're meditating or you have a glass of wine in order to meditate or what have you getting away from the problem for a little bit. I've often heard people um, saying that's the way to 
to tackle your problems, right? To think really, you, you might have to think very intensely, but then you have to walk away for a little bit. So it sounds like you have a very healthy way in general of um, managing a law practice and being creative and, you know, thinking through all the issues and obviously and, and writing about them. I know you have a lot of, um, you know, different, you've written in various forms. And this is where I stopped to ask you, is there, um, are you currently um, writing about anything right now? Do you have a project you're working on or a website that you, that you'd suggest that people look at if they want to find out more about your practice and about your, what you do? Well, in terms of what I am writing right now, mm-hmm. I have a client whose name is NetMail, N-E-T-M-A-I-L, okay. and they are changing their name to NetGovern. NetGovern, okay. N-E-T-G-O-V-E-R-N. And I have been writing for them, so I've written a series of blog posts uh, that they put up onto their, their blog, and I've written a white paper that they will probably soon uh, release in any event, um, th- Fantastic. Th- they they are a an organization that uh, historically has archived electronic mail, and they're evolving into becoming more of a um, a data governance uh, vendor that would help organizations manage all of their data, find their data, and and respond to all kinds of concerns, including e-discovery, but other kinds of compliance concerns like privacy and so on. In any Uh, event, that's probably the the best place that comes to my mind of where I have been writing, I am writing, and stuff is being uh, published. And and, I'm privileged to get the opportunity to be participating with them as they evolve from one stage of of, uh, their existence into the next stage. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, Ben, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have you as a guest. You heard it here. Go to Ben Spelt. Say it one more time where you can find your writing. Well, okay, for that client, it's for that client. Yeah, netmail, N E T M A I L dot com. And uh, then my general website, the the kind of launching pad for finding stuff about me is benjaminwright.us. Benjaminwright.us. I encourage you all to go out and uh, look up Benjamin Wright, W-R-I-G-H-T, and uh, to take his class at SANS. So with that, Ben, it's been wonderful. I look forward to staying in touch, and thank you so much again for coming on the show. Wow. Well, it uh, it was uh, very kind of you to invite me, Liz. It was a pleasure. Same here. Take care. And that's a wrap. You can always check us out at enteringthebar.com. As a reminder, all opinions on this show are made in our personal capacity and don't reflect the views of our employers. Many thanks to those who have provided use of their work through the Creative Commons licenses. This episode has featured No Peddler Song with Amy and Colmaja from their album Corn Smugglers and sounds from freesound.org with thanks to users Escort Marius, B.H. Weber, and Leander Stat and Tunis. You've been listening to Entering the Bar with Liz Lash.